This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 11, and the quote of the day is from Les Brown, who said, never let someone's opinion of you become your reality. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini, and we're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I got Jimmy Wormworth on the show today, and this is actually a recording of about a three-and-a-half-hour conversation I had with Jimmy, so it's excerpts from it, and Jimmy is a well-known jazz drummer in the New York scene. He was born in 1939, moved to New York when he was 20, and has been a staple on the scene ever since, played with Lou Donaldson, he used to sub for Elvin Jones, and he is just... He's been around the block so many times and he has so many great stories. And so I took this long conversation. I cut it up into about an hour or so of different excerpts. So I hope you like them. And uh, without further ado, Mr. Jimmy Wormworth. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you here. Nick, Nick it's my pleasure, man. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to look at a message I got from Dwayne Clemens here that we're not playing at Smalls on Saturday afternoon anymore. Now we're playing on Thursday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, so what um, – you were doing that every every Saturday. We yeah, talked about yeah, that before. Yeah, for quite a while, yeah. And what, and they're, then, they're moving it to Thursdays? Yeah, Dwayne Clemens is a trumpet player. He mm-hmm. went to Sweden for about three weeks. And uh, they canceled us out on Saturday. So well, when Dwayne comes back, we're going to put you on Thursdays, 6 to 9, I guess, or 6 to 7.30 or something. Okay. We haven't done it yet, but we're starting this Thursday. Okay. What's the reason for that? You don't know. I have no idea. Spike Wilner, I don't know. That place is strange, to put it mildly. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, how long have you been playing at Smalls? Oh man, since '95. '95. Started there with Charles Davis, and uh, and I just fell in with the other guys who worked there. And uh, yeah, I've seen the place change hands about three or four times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, the guy who works the door, Mitch Borden, used to own the place. And he, man, it was really great then. And uh, even though I, there was no liquor license, uh, but um, then I guess, I don't know what kind of problems he had, but he sold it to some Brazilian guy who owned it for a while. And I don't know, I guess the, the jazz musician scared him. <laughs> so hmm. he went and opened up a restaurant on the other side of 7th Avenue, right around the corner from Smalls. <laughs> and I think that's when Spike Wilner bought it. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I got you. And uh, it seems to be doing pretty well, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not so sure if the quality of the music is all that high all the time. Right. Yeah. But, uh, Why? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that. What do you think of the the quality of the of the jazz that's being played now versus the stuff that was being played twenty years ago? You know. Uh, well, um, it wasn't much less lower quality. I mean, much higher quality twenty years ago, but fifty years ago it was night and day. Well, sure. I sure. mean. Uh, all those guys who were big time pioneers, they're not around anymore. Right. They're all, they're all gone. Or as Charles Davis says, they left town. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. He's one of the few guys left, man. 
as far as saxophones, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter, and Charles, to me, are the three greatest living guys. And right. There's a lot of good players, but I don't know. They don't seem to have the seasoning or something or the background or something. And uh, I, th- I also think that the business people, agents, record company owners, and so forth, have gotten a stronger hold. I mean, they always seem to have a really strong hold on what happens in the music, who gets promoted, who doesn't, right. who gets to make records. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it's a huge flux. Uh, by the same token, as uh, it used to be that only a record company or would would give you a recording. Now with technology, it seems like everybody can make their own recordings for right. not that much money. Well, and I think that's a positive thing, actually. You think so? Yeah, really, because I mean... That means uh, the artists are taking back some control that that the business people had, right? You know? And uh, I mean, if you can't get some businessman to uh, hire you to make a recording of your work, hey, if you can make it yourself, that, to me, that's even better. Sure, sure, and you keep you more know? of the money for yourself too. Exactly, and for the other and for the other artists who participate mm-hmm. in the project. You know? Right. Well, what about the? I guess there's a lot of there's two sides to that because a lot of people say that you know years ago you couldn't afford to record your own record. You had to go right. through a record label. So right. there was kind of like this screening process, and yeah. So if you couldn't play, then you couldn't get a record. So now anyone can record a record. So do you think that that dilutes the talent pool? now so do you think that there's uh well man it's like it's like water fire or heat cold too much <laughs> one way or the other is not good right <laughs> too right. little or too much is not good <laughs> right. and uh, i mean i guess it's a little bit of a trade-off uh i think probably public uh benefits the most because they have such a wide wide variety of of what of work to choose from right I mean, they you know if they can look at a record and uh, if it looks good to them, and there's so many online uh, outlets, CD Baby and so forth, right? And you can just go through. And I guess I'm not too sure about it because I don't know that much about the, com- the internet and computers and all that. But I get the impression that um, on a lot of stuff you can, like up for instance on CD Baby, a lot of their stuff you can sample it. Yeah, and see if yeah, you, you like one track from a record, and if you don't like the record, then you don't buy it. Yeah, to me that harkens back to the old days, like fifty, sixty years ago, when uh, record shops, stores that sold recordings, mm-hmm. and even publishing houses like Shermer had booths where you could go and listen to a record. Oh, uh, like a little listening booth kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and up J and R used to have them. All the stores had them when I was a young guy coming up. And, right. Uh, and well, that's gone. Yeah. I don't think there are any places like that anymore. I mean, Shermer, the big publishing house that had mm-hmm. a, a store on, on uh, Broadway, like around where Lincoln Center is now, somewhere around there. Uh, that's gone even. Right. You know, I guess people must get most of their publishing stuff online, or maybe there are still some publishing houses that have outlets, retail outlets. I don't even know of any, I don't know of any stores that you can go, you know, I mean, you can buy CDs at Walmart and stuff like that, but there's no like. Not much of a selection. No. and Not like a Tower Records used to be or a J&R or a Colony or. 
and they're all Martin gone. Carroll, yeah, right. Uh-huh. You know, every single one of them's gone, which is yeah, it's sad, but I guess that's just the way that the way that things are going these days. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, um, but then a lot of online activity has taken the place of a lot of the stores. Right. Like I said, CD Baby. Right. Like Charles Davis's CD. Uh, as far as I know, it's the only place that's available on CD Baby or maybe some other uh, same kind of business like CD right. Baby. But well, CD Baby's nice because you get to keep you get to keep a higher percentage of. I mean, that my records on there, and I sell. Or I get to keep more, a lot more than I would if I sold it through iTunes or something like that. Yeah, I think my my fiance Faith, she did that with her CD. She's a singer, mm-hmm. and she used to have a radio show too on the internet. But anyway, uh, oh, if you know what? Also, you can come on Tuesday night to Annie Ross's gig. I put you on the guest list. Okay, where's that? It's nine thirty to ten thirty on Twenty Second Street, just west of Sixth Avenue, thirty four West Twenty Second. The oh. Metropolitan Room. Okay. We're there every Tuesday. Of course, Annie's 83, so... <laughs> 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 no telling what, what Tuesday we won't be there, but she's been there all the time. She's been there, <laughs> like, since 2005, so... Oh, nice. Yeah, every Tuesday. Once in a great while, she takes off, and not, not much. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, think- you know, we can sit and hang out. You can check us out. Cool. I think Annie's the greatest living jazz singer now. She knows so much. But yeah. She knows so many tunes. Well, you've played with a lot of them, too. I mean, you've played with... Uh, yeah, well, I played with Lambert and Nixon Ross for two years. Mm-hmm. You know? and I was a stupid kid, man. All, all I was thinking about was getting high and pussy. <laughs> 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 to me, it's amazing I could do even do that gig. But, well, I had played with quite a few people before that, but... Um, it's funny, on, on YouTube, there's a, a, a video of Lambert Hendricks and Ross at the Newport Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there are a couple. Yeah, there's uh, one, Arigen, which is a Sonny Rollins tune, and, uh, which is all scatting, John Hendricks and Dave Lambert, mostly scat. And it's real long. I was, well, I looked like I was 14, but I was 23, actually. <laughs> and there's another one, too, uh, Doodling. The horse silver tune, mm-hmm. and that's where they do the vocalese, where they take all the parts from the recording, and John Hendricks put words to them. Right. Yeah, you might want to check. That I will. Out. I definitely yeah. will. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else. So I'm sure there's a lot of Annie on YouTube somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she's really something that's great working with. It's a great band. Warren Vachet, Tidal Hammer, and Neil Miner. Really good band. So you said in in those videos you're you're 23. When did you? Right. You're originally from Utica, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what? And then so how did you make your way? I moved here. I moved here in 1957, October. Uh, Tori Zito, the arranger, the late Tori Zito, uh, had moved here not too long before that and gotten a little established. And he was working with a band in the, in the Catskills. At the Waldemere, in fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was mostly New York studio guys. And I guess they needed a drummer. And he called me and, and said, well, look, man, you want to move to New York? Uh, here's your chance. Uh, I'll have two weeks for you in uh, Catskills. And then after that, uh, uh, my roommate and I, Frank Porowski, can put you up for a week or two, and then you're on your own. And that's how I moved to New York. And how old were you? 
I was 20 then. I just turned 20 in August, and that was in October Okay. 57. So were you working a lot in, in Utica before you moved? Uh, yeah, I was working all over upstate. Syracuse, yeah. Rochester, uh, Buffalo. Uh, yeah, I had been working a lot. In fact, in Syracuse, I used to go there on the weekends when I was still a teenager and play with Scott LaFerro, the bassist, mm-hmm. who became kind of famous working with uh, Bill Evans. Uh, Right. After he moved to California, and um, yeah, and then I just uh, well, I already knew some guys there. I knew George Brace, who I had met uh, at Cornell University. Uh, I was playing uh, one of those homecoming weekends at Cornell with a Dixieland band, and somebody said, "Oh, you have to go over to this other fraternity house. There's a band from New York there." Blah blah blah. And it turns out the band was all these teenagers: George Brace, Pete LaRocca. John Mayer, this pianist who was uh, Dionne Warwick's accompanist for a long time. I think he lives on the coast now, but he's originally from Washington Heights. So I had a little bit of an entree in New York, just right. by knowing guys who were from here and lived here. And George, uh, we became friends, and he he took me around a little bit. And uh, I can remember he, uh, he was still living at home. He was just graduating from Music and Art High School, the original Music and Art High School, not LaGuardia. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he lived at home with his parents off Boston Road and 167th Street. And on 162nd Street, Donald Byrd and his wife and babies and Jimmy Cobb and uh, Khalil Mahdi, the drummers, mm-hmm. lived upstairs, right to like three or four blocks below uh, George's parents' house on uh, Boston Road, off Boston Road. And George took me by there, and that's how I met Donald Byrd, and that's how I met Jimmy Cobb and Kali Omadi. Those guys used to practice all day. Not Donald Byrd, but uh, Kali and Jimmy Cobb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, that's anytime you mentioned either one of those guys' names, people say, oh, yeah, they practice all the time. They're always <laughs> up in their house practicing. <laughs> I say, yeah, well, apparently they're going to go to Carnegie Hall someday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. So when you were in um when you were in Utica, when did when did you really get your start? I mean, how 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 old were you when you started playing? Well, uh that's kind of a long story. First of all, my father, who I didn't know until I was a teenager, uh, was a drummer and pianist and he worked with Billy Holiday and Helen Humes. Oh, wow. And I don't even know who else cuz when I finally did get to know him, he never talked to me about anything. Or never gave me the time of day. Uh, but anyway, uh, and my mother's brother was just as talented as my father. He was a saxophone player and a vocalist, okay. and he was great. But he was legally blind, and that he had big hang-ups about that, so he never moved to New York. And my father just got really messed up uh, doing the wrong things, and he never moved to New York either. But uh, here I met guys who knew him, oh, uh, really? who, my father, who were friends with my father. Uh What's her name? Uh, Billy Billy Holiday's accompanist, uh, Bob Henderson, who was an old friend of my father's. Billy Kyle, the pianist, who was an old friend of my father's. And that's through Billy Kyle. I met Louis Armstrong and those guys and Louis's band. And um, did you did you so who did you uh, did you play with with Armstrong? Did I play with who? With Louis Armstrong. No, no, oh. I just met those guys. Okay. Because Billy Kyle was a friend of my father's. Uh, I got you. I was able to meet them and 
get to know them a little bit. Uh, uh, I played with some of Lewis's contemporaries, Red Allen, uh, well, Max Kaminsky, some of the older guys. Mm. Uh, who else? Oh, Roy Eldridge. I played with Roy Eldridge. Uh, oh, nice. Coleman Hawkins. Uh, I played Coleman Hawkins next to the last performance before he died. Oh, really? Yeah, at the Fillmore East. Huh. In fact, it was the last concert at the Fillmore East. Bill Graham from California. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I can remember who was on that concert. Coleman Hawkins, uh, Gary Burton's Sextet, mm-hmm. and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Big Band. Huh. So you played yeah. at the last the last, the last show at Fillmore the East. The last Fillmore East concert. Jazz Jazz at the Fillmore it was called. It was right. every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, that was 1969. Wow. Yeah. And I can't remember. I wasn't really playing that much. I was off the scene. I was playing, but uh, not that much. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody just called me, hey, man, can you come and do this concert? I said, well, man, I haven't played. That's all right. We heard you before. Just come. <laughs> so I did. And I was really nervous. And Barry Harris, he used to be Coleman Hawkins' accompanist at that time. And he said, man, we stop being nervous, just play. Right. <laughs> so, are you kidding me? I'm playing with Colin Hawkins. <laughs> <laughs> and you're telling me stop being nervous. <laughs> but it worked out, right? Uh, yeah, it did. Colin yeah. uh, Hawkins <laughs> was real nice to me. So let's... If, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, what were you going to... Uh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, the first gig I had with Lambert Hendricks and Ross was at the Monterey Festival. We drove from New York all the way out to California. Oh, wow. And we got there, and uh, we went, we pulled up to this hotel that was like the headquarters of the festival. Mm-hmm. And Coleman Hawkins and, and Roy Aldridge were standing outside. And we got out of the car, and the rest of those guys, Gilda Mahonis, Ike Isaacs, and John Hendricks' brother, Jim, who was the road manager, they knew those guys. I didn't. Right. All I knew them from was downbeat recordings <laughs> and blah, blah, you know. <laughs> so we went up to the, blah, 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 and they started teasing me. But I didn't know they were teasing Where'd you get this funny-looking little kid? Who is this kid? What did he do? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I got angry. <laughs> and Gilbert Mahonis and I got, they said, no, man, be cool. No, they're just, they're just teasing you. Blah, blah, blah. Said, yeah, well, I don't like that. <laughs> so at that concert... I asked Coleman Hawkins about it. I said, Mr. Hawkins, do you remember? This was after we finished playing. Right. He looked like Methuselah. He had long salt and pepper hair down to his shoulders and a long beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I said, uh, do you remember? Blah, 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 blah. He just smiled. He said, no, son, I'm sorry. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, I started taking lessons. So uh, my father and my uncle weren't around. So it was left to my mother and my aunt, mm-hmm. who basically raised me. Uh, well, he's uh, he loves music. He's driving, he's driving us crazy. This entire Tatum Records, blah blah blah. He's nine years old. What's he? What's if he's got to play an instrument? What should he play? While his father played drums, he might as well play drums. And that's exactly how I ended up playing drums. Hmm. Did you want to yeah, play drums? Horrible man, but huh? Did you want to? Oh, I didn't know any better. I was ten years old. Right. You know, I didn't know. Uh, now, if, if I had my choice, I would play the piano. Right. I really think that... Why is that? Certain instruments fit certain personalities. And I think uh, my personality is much more suited to the piano or a horn. Why do you say not, that? Not the drums so much. Uh, well, most of all the drummers I admire 
uh, they seem to be very self-confident. Look at our Blakey mm-hmm. or Alvin or even Max. What do we, Max walked. He's like, he's had swagger. Right. And uh, so one day, and plus all the stuff they tell you, well, the drummer, man, you got to keep the beat. You're the timekeeper. To me, everybody in the band is a timekeeper. Right. If a bass player has strange time, man, it messes me all up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the piano player, for that sure. matter. Piano player is solo, man, and his time is real stiff. <laughs> so, to me, everybody is responsible for, for playing good rhythm. Yeah, I basically. Agree. And good phrasing. A good metronomically, you don't rush, you don't drag, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, and it seems like all the drummers I admire, man, they didn't, they don't care what the rest of the band is doing. Follow me, so right. to speak. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you've experienced that. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if the bass player is messing you up, they want to blame it on you, and right. the bass player gets away scot free. You know? I had, a, I used to play a gig with a guy, and he would always mess up this tune, and uh, he would always blame it on me. <laughs> right. And it was exactly. always, and he did it every single time. So then I told the band leader, I said, listen, dude, I'm telling you, it's not me. I'm telling you right now. So then we got a new bass player. Tune never never messed up the tune ever ever since then. Right, right. You know, and I'm like, well, who and was the leader it? probably wasn't hip to it until you got the new bass player and he could hear it for himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. He would take it. It was like a, a Samba thing and he would flip it. <laughs> and he would always blame it on me. Right. <laughs> 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 used to drive me nuts, man. Yeah. And anyway, anyway, so my so my mother, well, what instruments did he play? Well, his father was a drummer. We'll make him take drum lessons. And I didn't know any better. I was 10 years old. Right. And so they took me to a great teacher who was a percussionist with the local symphony. And he was a great rudimental drummer. Mm-hmm. And that's what he taught me, rudiments. And I had great chops by the time I was 12 and a half years old. He, he had a, a, a beginner's book, uh, which he had written. It basically showed you how to hold the sticks and uh, and the four strokes, fold down, tap up. Right. And uh, and maybe a couple of rudiments like the flam. And then he started you on, ha- and after you finished that, he started you on Haskell Har books, which I think there were two or three. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of those books. but And then I went through stick control, George Lawrence Stone. Sure. And then I went through three of the four Carl Gardner books. And I did all that from 10 years old to 12 and a half. And then I was finished with his course. And then he wanted me to study timpani and xylophone. In other words, he was a percussionist. He wanted me to learn how to play per- all the percussion instruments. Right. And I didn't have anybody to guide me. And I thought, so I wasn't interested in that. I said, man, I'm 13 years old now. Give me a drum set. Right. I want to go play with, I want to go play with so-and-so. So, all, so, so I want to play like so-and-so. I want to play like... Like Buddy Rich, right? right. <laughs> you know. So, were you only playing snare drum for two years? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Because you can't get away with that kind of thing now. Like, I could never have a student that just played snare drum for two years. They just uh, just the attention span isn't there. Well, well, all the teaching I well, let's see, the first teaching I did was for I guess a couple of years for a New York City Board of Education Saturday morning extracurricular program. A friend of mine, the guitar player, uh, Bob Grillo, he was a school teacher for 25 years. And he, he was a studio guy, too, and a jazz guy. But, uh, 
he was retired, and uh, I don't know, somebody at the board of it contacted him, look, there's a Saturday morning program out in their Queens, you live in Queens, blah, 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 and they're having, you can bring in professionals who aren't, professional musicians, I mean, who aren't uh, certified teachers. Uh, we have a, a a contractor who we do this, the board of ed, that is, right. goes through this contract. Some guy up in Rockland County. And anyway, he hired a bunch of people, Jessica Jones, a saxophone player, me and a few other people, to augment the Board of Ed licensed teachers at this Saturday morning class. Mm -hmm. And that's when I first started teaching. And I just photocopied some of the diagrams for the strokes from my teacher's book, which I still had. And uh, so I ended up teaching to kids, uh, grade school kids, like from eight years old up to 13. Right. I taught him from the from just from the start man, how to hold the sticks and everything and how to read and everything, and uh, it was pretty easy actually. Yeah. And uh, then the only other teaching I did was with professionals, like rock guys who wanted to play jazz and so forth. So right. I did some workshops in Berlin and in, in Vienna, and uh, I just did a jazz camp in in Spain outside of Barcelona for two weeks. Oh, that's and, awesome. How was in that? In August. Yeah, it was fantastic. All these really talented people, kids, grown-ups from all over, from, from South America, from all over Europe, from Japan. It was really incredible. And the, the organizer of the camp, the founder, is uh, maybe you know him, Jorge Rossi, that's a drummer, uh, a Spanish drummer <clears throat> who uh, worked with Brad Meldau for 10 years. Yeah, he's a great drummer, man. and now he's switching from the drums to the piano. It's <laughs> oh, <okay>. good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Charles Davis also went, and Putter Smith, the bass player from California, the younger mm -hmm. brother of Carson Smith, who made all his records mm -hmm. with Jerry Mulligan and Shorty Rogers. And uh, who else? And Mike Kanan, the pianist. Do you know him? Mm, not from uh, He's Jane Monheit's accompanist. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, he's the one who's friends with Jorge, and he's known Jorge for 25 years. And when Jorge started this camp about six years ago, uh, he asked Mike to uh, recommend teachers from New York. Peter Bernstein has done it a few times, not this past year, but uh, he was in he was in Korea with Billy with uh, Billy Hart. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, said, Man, you, huh? Billy recorded. Um, at this place in Exton, uh, right where I, <clears throat> excuse me, where I'm originally from, uh, called the Music Center, with a drummer named Glenn Farrakhan. Um <clears throat> I recorded my record there, and then a couple weeks later, Billy recorded a record there. Uh huh. I don't know if it was Billy's record or if he was just playing. I think he was right. playing on the tune, but uh -huh. uh, but yeah, it was cool to to see him there. <clears throat> this place uh, it was called the Music Center, and they, he actually just relocated um, right down the street from the place where he's at. Uh, the place where he was now he just relocated but uh but he recorded they did like a bunch of uh a bunch of Joey D Francesco records in there and and and, uh -huh. and Pop D Francesco and the D Francescos are originally from like the Springfield area but they played a lot Springfield New Jersey you mean No Springfield yeah. Oh Pennsylvania Yeah or Springford or Springfield or something Oh okay but um but then they used to play a lot in Westchester, which is right around where I'm from. So I used to, I like, I was, fortunate. Oh really? You're from Westchester. Wow. Yeah. So I was fortunate to like, to see, uh, to see pop playing for years and Joey. And then I caught a record with Johnny DeFrancesco, Joey's brother. Uh 
I don't even know those guys. I only yeah. heard of Joey DeFrancisco, but I've only heard of him. I don't think I ever met him. Okay. He plays organ, right? Yeah, yeah. Plays with everyone. Well, I heard my, oh, who was it? Ronnie Zito. Do you know my homeboy, Ronnie Zito? No. Man, you might want to interview him, too. I'll In fact, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll hook you cats up. Yeah, that'd be great. He, he used to be the jingle king of New York. He's a drummer on Barry Manilow, Copacabana, on the I Love New York commercials. Oh, awesome. And man, since, uh, since, since all the studio stuff went down the toilet in New York, he's been right. doing Chicago for the past 14 years since it huh. started. And he still does some recordings and stuff. Yeah, man. I would, him, you definitely would like to talk to. I would love know. to. If you could. He lives in Jersey, too. He lives oh, okay. in Dumont, I think. Okay. Yeah, if you can hook me up with that, I would. Yeah, definitely. Man. I would yeah. Ronnie's a great cat. Man. Great drummer, too. He knows a lot about this. He's Tori Zito's younger brother. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, oh, what was I talking about? Uh, Where were we? Oh, yeah, Ronnie played this record for me with... Uh, What's his name? One of my son's favorite drummers. He's real fat. He lives in California. He has incredible chops. As soon as you say his name, I, I just can't think of his name off the top of my I, I Younger I guy? Older guy? Uh, well, I don't know. I guess 50 or something. Probably my son's age. Maybe. He has a lot of chops. My son loves Greg Bissonette. Oh, sure. Or he used to. I don't know if he still does. But right. this, And this guy, man, you know his name. Man. He's... He's really famous. What the hell's his name? Oh, man. Not Dennis. Well, anyway, this trio wreck with Joey DeFrancisco. Oh, is it Dennis uh, Chambers? Dennis Chambers, right. Thank you. Is it, is <laughs> right. it Dennis Chambers, Joey DeFrancisco, and Pat Martino? Or not Pat Martino, Maybe. John McLaughlin? Maybe, yeah. I can remember Ronnie, uh, he met me. He came down to Smalls one time, and then he drove me to the subway. And he said, man, you got to hear this, and blah, blah, blah. I want you to hear Dennis Chambers. I said, oh, yeah, Jimmy. My son loves Death Chambers, man. Blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, I just heard a little bit. Man, it was outrageous. Well, he played with he <laughs> there played was with so Miles. Stuff on it. I said, please take that off. Yeah. <laughs> Brain overload. <laughs> it was, I think. I, I, I mean, it wasn't bad. It was great. Right. But, I mean, the, man, it was so complicated. I said, please. I think that's John, <laughs> it's John McLaughlin. Me. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I think it's who it is John McLaughlin, Dennis Chambers, and Joey DeFrancesco. So sure. listen, man, you're from Westchester mm -hmm. as opposed to Jersey. Right. Now, I don't know if you know, Jersey used to be super famous for drum and bugle cars. Uh, I didn't. Really? Have you ever checked out any drum and bugle cars? Uh, no. Well, let me give you an idea where they're at. All right. When I first met Billy Cobb, I mean, he was 18 years old. He came and sat into my gig. I mean, he was outrageous. Totally smoked my ass, man. Anyway, so then we're talking. He says, Wormworth, you anything to Joe Wormworth? I said, yeah, he's my brother. Get out of here. He's my idol. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> my brother's huge in drum and bugle chorus. Really? And Billy Cobham, that's where he started out. That's how he got so much of his chops. Huh. Man, those guys are the, are the, the epitome of rudimental drumming. Sure. Uh, you, so you never heard of uh, uh, the Garfield, the cadets of Bergen County? They used to be called the Garfield cadets. Uh, man, I, I have a couple of DVDs with them. Man, these guys. I showed them to this young French girl drummer who used to live here in New York. I met her at Smalls. And she, had, she, she crashed here at my crib for about three months. And I put this DVD on of, uh, of, of the Garfield. They used to be called the Garfield cadets. They mm. were based in Garfield, New Jersey. Some... some uh, uh, 
either a church sponsored them or an American Legion post. But then they got so big, man, and their budget is like $5 million a year or something. Good Lord. Yeah, and now they, uh, I don't know, because they're independent, but they're, they're based in Bergen County somewhere. I don't know where. I guess that's where Garfield is, isn't it? Garfield, New Jersey. I, I got to be honest with you. I live in Jersey, and I don't. You're right. I don't know that much about. <laughs> Man, I, just, I hate Jersey. <laughs> I just, you know what? I just, I just moved here full time. You know, not even a year ago. So I've been oh, okay. back and forth uh, between Philly and here for two years, but just moved here full time. So I'm like. I don't really know that much about, and plus I don't drive. Well, I mean, you know, I drive. You're better but, off. You don't have to deal with them jug handles. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't need to drive. <laughs> I, I take the. I take the train. I take the path, and I take the subway. So, uh-huh, like, right, uh, right. You know, my car will sit for weeks at a time. So I don't go out uh-huh. and explore like I would somewhere else. Right. So people are like, "Do you know where this is?" And I just pull it up on Google real quick and figure it out. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, yeah, I showed this girl, man, drummers. Uh, and man, she freaked. Oh man, take it off! I can't watch that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these drummers are really something. Uh, they're mental drumming. Man. That's, yeah. that's how I had man. I, for fifty years, I never practiced. Man, I just relied on what I, what my teacher put me through. Really? I had oh man, I had the greatest chops when I was a kid. When I was younger. But what about? But I guess there's always been, you know, the the question of how do you get the the rudiments to translate onto the kit because you don't want to because i don't you know like you don't sound like you're when you're playing you don't sound like stiff and rudimentary though you know well i i i tell students uh well look man um the great thing about rudiments is they're sort of like uh uh what unchangeable exercises they always they're always played the same way but you can take them and play them on three or four drums at one time, two tom-toms and a snare drum, for instance. Play a paradiddle on all three drums at once instead of on one drum. And the audience thinks you're playing some really complicated stuff. Right. And all you're doing is left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. right. You, know? <laughs> you do it on one drum and it just sounds like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You do it on two or three drums, da 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 And the people think, you could, wow, he's a genius. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they have no idea that you're just using a rudiment. You know? Right, right, just changing well, like the Like even something as simple as a flan, the left hand on the snare drum, the right hand on the floor, tom-tom. Or alternate between the with the right hand between the floor tom tom and the small tom tom boom 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 boom. <laughs> You're just playing the damn flam, you right. know. <laughs> well, in other words, using devices to to what to uh, like enhance your own creativity, your ideas, right. Right. your inventiveness, what comes to your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's like another tool in your toolbox. You sure. know, you're playing, you're drumming, you're performing toolbox. All the rudiments. I mean, I don't go so far as to play a radimacute or some shit, but but paradiddles are enough, even. Right. Just a regular single paradiddle, you know, mm-hmm. or even a double paradiddle played on three drums. Man, it sounds like sounds like like a kaleidoscope of drums or something, right. you know. Yeah. And so I I tell this like the the rock guys in Berlin who want who were going to this drum school who wanted to learn about jazz and they hired me to do workshops. And I told man, simple stuff like that. You learn rudiments. Number one, it'll build up your chops mm-hmm. and help you be have endurance, better endurance, and more speed mm-hmm. if you practice practice them a lot. 
And number two, they'll they'll give you up, you know, uh, some natural, some resources, raw resources to use when you solo or when you play anything. I mean, you could put a paradiddle on a, on a, a turn back in a tune, the end of one right. chorus, the beginning of another. You know? and, uh, so to me, I recommend rudimental drumming to every uh, put, you know, somebody who wants to study the drums to anybody right. who wants to who's trying to make up their mind if they want to play the drums. I say, well, look, man, the first thing I would, I would teach you would be rudiments. We'd start off with the four strokes, full stroke, down stroke, tap, and up stroke. Right. And I think that's a great basis for getting control, hand control, having good control. And if, if, you, and if you practice them as precisely as they're meant to be practiced, like with the full stroke, the stick totally vertical, and then you return to vertical and the tap, you start vertical or the downstroke, you start vertical and you end up, what, two inches above the drum with the stick parallel with the drum. It takes control. And the sure. more you work on it, the better control you get. Mm-hmm. And the long roll, to me, what's what's more uh, endurance taxing than long roll? Yeah. I mean, my, that's the first thing my teacher taught me. It would take like five, ten minutes to go through the whole thing. Start out with the sticks at full strokes, Left, left, right, right, left, and just keep getting faster until you're playing a roll, right. a double stroke roll, and then you come out of it. Mm-hmm. And man, I can't even get into it anymore. <laughs> when I was 11 years old, I could play it like a like a champ, you know. <laughs> but not practicing for 50 years, now I can get as far as da 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 da, da and my arms start falling off. Right, you know. <laughs> but I tell guys, look, man, um, for control. Practicing all the rudiments is great. The flam paradiddle is really hard, uh, but for endurance and 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 uh, speed, uh, the long roll is plenty. Mm-hmm. To me, if you you work on that and you draw it out so, so that you get into it gradually and come out of it gradually, right. man, if your arms aren't falling off, <laughs> you'll know, right. be fast as Buddy. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, <laughs> Also, my, uh, I've seen a resurgence of aluminum sticks. Yeah. I mean, practice sticks, those right. big, heavy sticks. And my teacher always used those, and he used to make me use them, too. Really? But yeah, those are else 3S. Yeah, I never played with orchestra-sized sticks until I, you know, started playing on the trap set on right. drums. Because I always heard people saying that, you know, if the, the aluminum sticks are good, but I think that a lot of people are hurting themselves with them. That's what I think too. Yeah, I'm inclined to think that too. You know, yeah, and I think that can make you muscle bound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if you look at baseball players before they're ready to go to bat, they use either a, a bat with a weight on it, or sure. I saw a guy yesterday using a metal thing. It didn't even look like a bat. Yeah, it's like a. It has like a. It's a metal handle, and then a. It has like a threaded thing on it, and then a thing at the top of it. Something. Yeah. yeah. Right. But they only do that for what? Maybe what? Three or four minutes. Right. From the time they come out of the dugout into the bat, into the on deck circle to the time they go up to bat. Right. Right. But man, if you start practicing with those metal sticks and you're practicing a half an hour, an hour, oh, that's that's got to do something wrong. Yeah. That's what I'm. That's what I'm inclined to think anyway. I mean, I've used um, those dig it stick weights before. Before a gig to just kind of, of like help me loosen up a little bit, but 
You know, yeah, that might be a good idea. Yeah. Well, my teacher gave me an exercise where you hold, you put the sticks together and you hold them with your palms up like you're offering something up, mm-hmm. like you, you're offering somebody something. Uh, and you hold the sticks on each end, with each hand, and then you twist your hands around so that, uh, let's see, let me try to do this pantomime. Yeah, you twist your hands around. Well, you start with your palms up and you're holding the sticks from the outside, and you twist your arms around so that your palms down. <laughs> right. I'd have to show it to you. No, I and get what you're saying. It stretches the muscles. Yeah, my teacher taught me that. And then taking the sticks, both sticks in one hand, and twisting them like you're like a propeller, and then doing it with the other hand. Mm-hmm. And that's what I usually use to just loosen up. But just loosen up. nothing like playing some single strokes too. Right. Warm up. And, uh, so you're saying you don't practice anymore, though? Man, I haven't practiced since. Uh, well, since I got out of school. Really? <laughs> yeah. Since I started playing. Well, I had such great chops, I, did, I thought I didn't need to practice. Right. Well, I used to practice. I used to set up my drums in our basement and play along with records. Mm-hmm. That's about the only kind of practicing I did. Uh, to keep my ch- Well, not to keep my chops up. I was, I was like 15 then. Right. Trying to learn how to play jazz on a drum set. Right, but then after I got that a little together, I went out and played, and that was a practicing. But I never practiced keeping my chops up, which I should. I need to do it now. But my chops are so horrible, I look like I never even played the drums. <laughs> I look like some kid who just picked up drumsticks, like one of those wind-up uh, tin uh, monkeys. <laughs> that's one thing I really admire my son for I never taught him anything I, I brought it up to him not too long ago I said geez to me I really, you know, it just occurred to me 50 something years later that I never showed you anything on the drums I mean, wow, what a kind of a jerk was I? oh no dad that's okay I don't mind at all no, no. you he never showed him anything him, nope he went out and taught himself rudiments he even had students when he was working at Sam Ash on 48th Street, the old Sam Ash, when the drum department was upstairs. Right. Remember that? No, I don't know. It was on I the wasn't, downtown side of the there. street. It was on the same side as Manny's. Oh, okay. And, um, man, he was he just taught himself rudiments. He had great chops. And I, I, I still haven't even asked him, well, what did you do to do that? What did you use a book or what? <laughs> it was before the why, internet, I know that. Why wouldn't he ask you? That's a good question. I don't know. I've, I'll ask him in the interview. I was an angry father. So. What's that? But I was an angry father. By then, he was a teenager. He was getting out on his own. He got the right. job of Sam Ash on his own. He used to do seminars for Sam Ash, for drum machine seminars, oh, when okay. the Lynn drum machine first came yeah, out and yeah. all that. Yeah. Some of the stuff he used to program just to let the people hear it. You know, Sam Ash was trying to promote drum machines, mm-hmm. and they had him do seminars. And, Man, some of the stuff he's a play is to just totally demoralize me. Man, how'd you think of that hip shit? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're my son. <laughs> That's the only good thing about it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, when he was little, and he'd be sitting watching cartoons or something, and he'd absentmindedly play on the table with his fingers along with the music. Mm-hmm. And I'd sit and listen to him, and he'd come up with ideas, six or seven years old, 
that's when I really got discouraged. <laughs> I said, oh, shit. <laughs> he never even took a drum lesson. He doesn't even know how to op- open a drum case. Right. He's coming up with all these ideas. What the hell? Why am I wasting my time? Yes. Yes. But, yeah, and then he had a couple of students while he was still working at Sam Ash. So he more or less taught, him, taught himself, and he seems to have really good chops now. Yeah, he, Better than me, that's for sure. Wow. And I had a great teacher when I was 10 years old and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, but uh, if you look at the stuff that you learned, how long it lasted you. True, yeah, yeah. You know? That's, what I tell, really... that's what I tell guys. I said, look, man, that's such a great teacher. It's lasted me all this time. Sure. Yeah, uh-huh. That's a great point, man. That's a great observation. Yeah, you know, it's like if if you weren't taught the right stuff, then you know, right. it just shows how useful that knowledge was yeah. then, and how you know how useful it is now for anybody, even anyone listening, that you know, learning your learning your rudiments and learning the proper stuff right. will last forever. Yeah, it does. It actually does, yeah. especially if you learn at a young age. Sure. You know, yeah, you never forget. It's conditioning. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I, mean, I watch myself play. I, I, compared to some guys I see who never studied rudiments or never really had much uh, formal training, but who are talented and mastered pretty much mastered the instrument anyway, they look like they're playing with their arms, not with their wrists. You know? right. And I look at myself and I say, wow, I look like a drummer. In the meantime, I hate playing the right. drums. I wish I never played the drums. I'm lucky I went so far playing the drums, you know. <laughs> but to, to me, that's a testament to, to my teacher and the good training I had. Sure. You know, that when I watch myself play, man, my hands look like, I don't know how to describe a professional or something, you know, drummer. Right. right. And I see a lot of young guys, man, it looks like they're playing with their arms. I hear good ideas, but watching them is not so great. And I think rolling is, is hard if you never took, well, some kind of technical training, preferably uh, rudimental training. But I think rolling, if you, if, you, if you haven't been trained to use your wrists, if you're rolling like from the elbow down, you know what I mean? Right. And you can't roll as good as somebody who's trained rudimentally, I don't think. No. Uh, and... I've noticed that most guys that don't have a strong rudimental background don't play a lot of strokes other than single strokes. That's true too, right. Right. Because they never learned how to combine strokes together. A right. tap and an upstroke or a downstroke and an upstroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that gave me great control. Uh, not only that, but I think it helps, helps in meticulousness in your sound. You don't sound raggedy. You know what I mean? But then on the other hand, there are other guys who don't have much creativity or maybe even a lot of talent, but man, they, they were going to be a drummer or a trumpet player or a pianist regardless. And yeah. they're going to practice all day sure. and they play the instrument fantastically. They just don't play such great music on it. You know? Right. Right. That's another thing I try and tell some students. I said, look, uh, the instrument is nothing but a machine. If you think mm-hmm. about it, just like the sewing machine is a machine 
for Calvin Klein or Hugo Boss or what the hell ever. I could buy a sewing machine, but that doesn't mean I'm going to make a nice suit like Hugo Boss can. Right. Yeah, well, Hugo Boss can buy a drum set. That doesn't mean he's going to be able to play music like me. He might play the drums really good, but that doesn't mean he's playing music on the drums really good. Absolutely. And that's what I try to tell students. Well, look, it doesn't really matter that much what instrument you play because it's a machine. Now, there's mm-hmm. there's the question, in my mind at least, of what machines suit you best. Maybe some guys would be good at driving a tractor instead of working a sewing machine. Right. And vice versa. You know what I mean? Just because mm-hmm. of the nature of the machine itself. You know, and maybe some people, uh, well, with the instruments, man, I mean, the piano, why I like the piano is because I like to run my mouth and I like to solo. Right. You know, soloing <laughs> to me is the same as running your mouth. Right. Except you're doing it through music. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, also, I get distracted real easy. Not good for a drummer. Right. The drummer, they want you to be on, quote, on the case all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you said about that bass player. The drummer catches right. the flag. <laughs> Even if somebody yeah. else in the band is really the problem. <laughs> so yeah, uh, with the piano, too, man, yeah. of the, 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 the trumpet player soloing, man, I don't have to keep accompanying him all the time. I can just sit and let the bass player play. He's another one who right. has to play all the time. You know? Right. And then when it comes time to solo, man, I could talk for hours. Well, I could solo for hours, too. You know? <laughs> so that's what I meant about certain instruments fitting certain personalities better than right. other instruments. Well, let's I, talk I, never, I, never really, I never really had anybody else broach that subject with me. You know? So, hey, what? man, what do you think about the... You think your personality fits your instrument, blah blah blah. Right. Or what about so and so? You think he'd make a good piano player, blah blah blah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that nobody ever really brought that up to me. Right. Uh, also, another thing that I've never really discussed with hardly anybody is touch. Two of the best compliments I ever got in my life. One was from Al Haig, the great pianist, and he said, "Well, one thing he liked about me was my touch." That mm-hmm. meant so much to me. And somebody else said that to me not so long ago. And lately, I've been trying to talk to drummers about touch. Right. You know, people maybe don't realize uh, how important touch is on the drums. Because, sure. there's, because there's, there's this thing between your hand and the drum. It's called a stick. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, man, after you play long enough, the stick becomes like an extension of your hand, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you might not be able to touch the bead of the drumstick to a stove to tell whether it's hot or cold, but you could tell when it's touching the stove. Just by the, right. I don't mean the temperature of it. I mean just that the stick, right. it, it becomes like second nature. It becomes part of you almost. And you can manipulate So how do you the, work on that? I never really worked on it. I, mean, I just was something that was always on my mind. Uh, how, if I touch the symbol this way, or I hit it this way, or this angle, or that angle, or where I hit the snare drum, or, or do I actually get a different sound from the beat of a stick uh, as opposed to when I turn it around and use the butt, and so mm-hmm. forth. And I, never, I just thought sort of subconsciously, absentmindedly or something, in the back of my mind, thought about those kinds of things. And it wasn't until I, Al Haig mentioned touch to me. And I thought, wow, man, nobody ever talked to me about touch, and it's such an important thing to me. And I never really thought about it consciously, but in the back of my mind, I've always sort of semi-consciously thought about, well, how do I hit this, this symbol this way, that way? And so how do you... 
tell your students to do that? How do you tell them to, to work on that or, or well, just tell them to be I, mindful I, tr- of it? I think I try to tell them to just be conscious of it and then choose how they want to do it themselves like I did. Right. You know, I just sort of worked out my own ways of, of, of uh, attack. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I want. And I even use different sticks. I'll use a stick where the, where the bead is totally worn down on some things or with some situations, a piano trio or whatever, or, or a place, a, a venue where the acoustics are so live or so forth. Or if I'm playing outside, I like to use uh, nylon tips. Right. I think it defines us. I think you get better definition out of the symbols. Sure. Sure. And to me, that's, that's really an extension of the whole concept of touch on your instrument. Mm-hmm. Now you were talking about about soloing and, and saying how you could solo for hours. Um, so what do you, I know that a lot of people either can't solo, don't know what to play when they're soloing, right. or just play a bunch of chops that they've been shedding in their, right. in their practice room. So what, what's your approach to, to soloing and what's your advice for soloing? Uh, well, the first thing I have in mind when I'm going to play a solo is the piece we're playing. Is it 32 bars long? In other words, uh, am I playing I've Got Rhythm, the blues, or whatever? I want to follow the form of the music itself, of the piece of music we're playing, which we're improvising on. Mm-hmm. And lately, I've been trying to get the piano player and bass player to play stop time, to play chords behind me, so they know where I am. And I can adjust if, I, if my hands screw me up and I sort of lose phrasing metronomically. Right. Uh, in other words, what well, I'm, I'm sort of turning the beat down, not phrasing-wise, but metronomically I'm turning the beat down because my hands hung me up or something. But I still know where I am in the part of the song. You sure. know what I mean? And if they play Stop Time behind me, uh, I can, if I'm, if I, screw up one bar and I, I accidentally put a one beat too many in it because my hands are hung up. I know the phrasing and I don't mean, you know what I mean? Right. Metronomically mm-hmm. it's wrong, but phrasing wise, it's right. I know right. where I am in the song. I know if I'm playing da, 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 or if I'm on da, 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 you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And if they play start time behind me, they can help guide me and I'm helping guide them. Mm-hmm. That they can hear exactly where I am, and it just seems organized a little bit. But it seems like I have a hard time getting guys to do it. Can we please play stop time behind me? Oh, why, why? oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still working on that. But uh, I try to play the, the, the phrasing of the piece. You know, just like the saxophone player has to play the, the chords when he's improvising on. on mm-hmm. uh, on the chords of the tune we're playing. I try to play, I try to stay with the form. Right. Sometimes when the form is complicated, I forget it, and I just start playing. I say, okay, I'll sing to you guys. (laughs) I want you to come back in. All right, let's go back. (laughs) (laughs) But but when I solo, man, I try to stick to the form of the music. Now, I'm just another instrument. I'm playing the same music. You know, right? Okay, so I'm not playing it tonally, mm-hmm. but as far as phrasing, as far as the form, I'm playing the same thing, or at least that's what I think I want. That's what I want to do. You know, right. some guys, man, they just want to go off and just play, and then when they think they're finished, they come in. But do you everybody. think that's where the breakdown is, though? That drummers, since they're not playing tonally, they're they're not 
cognizant of, of the, the phrasing and the... All the guys the, I admire are. Well, sure. I'm talking about younger guys that are that are playing. Or uh, well, I think the ones who studied the music and, 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 and wanted to be like, what, the people they admired, they, right. they'll, they'll uh, play in a traditional way, follow the form and so forth. Mm-hmm. Or if they're, oh, well, I'm sure if the, those guys who can do that, when there's a piece of music where they want the drummer to just be free form and do what you want, and then when you're ready, we'll come back in, they can right. do that too. But the guys who don't know, who don't have enough sense, who are more interested in the technical side, in other words, a lot of chops, and how mm-hmm. fast they can get around the drums, or all the tricks they can play and all that, I don't think they're even thinking about the, playing the music. I think right. they're thinking about playing the drums and playing all the work they put in to have fast hands and so forth, you know. Right. <laughs> and the music and is out the window. But then I think a, little, I think a lot of... A lot of the audience, and they're not, most audiences, and they're not really what, knowledgeable when it comes to music. Sure. They say, well, I like that song. Right. Oh, yeah, well, well, well uh, how many sharps in F? What are you talking about? <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> I see these people on the subway, the man. Civilians. Right. <laughs> I see these people on the subway with, uh, with uh, iPods or whatever, you know, listening to music. And they're bobbing their heads and all that. I'm so tempted to go over to them and say, so you're a real music lover, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love you. Oh, I have music. So tell me, how many sharps in F? (laughs) (laughs) What? What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't mean that you look sharp. I don't mean you look sharp. (laughs) Right. Right. Like one time, every player's bar mitzvah on Staten Island. We're sitting out in the lobby on a break. And one of the guests comes over to us, this woman, an obnoxious woman. Why don't you play Celine Dion? She's the great. Bill White, the piano player, and I look at each other, man. That made us laugh. You know, We weren't laughing. We were just smiling, trying to be right. polite. And she gets angry. You never heard Celine Dion? She's the greatest in the world. Blah, 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 blah. I had to bite my tongue, man, because we're employees. I wanted to tell, hey, right. how many sharps in F? Right. <laughs> well, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> so much for Celine Dion. <laughs> yeah. That went out the window. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, well, like, how do you, I mean, how do you feel about the new stuff that's out now, musically? Uh, well, I don't know, man. To be honest with you, I don't listen to the radio that much. Or yeah, me neither. Only much, most of the music I hear is it's, it's smalls, really. And, well, uh, it seems like a lot of young drummers I hear now, uh, they think the music started with Elvin or Tony Williams. Right. And I don't hear much rhythm when they play. Mm-hmm. I hear a, low, a lot of stuff going on all over the drums. Some of it good ideas, some not. Some sounds like a bull in a china shop. Crash, bang, boom, bang, 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 bang. Right. And uh, I don't know. I I, I, I want to tell them, hey, look, man, did you ever hear of Kenny Clark? <laughs> right. Did you ever hear of Rock Blakey? <laughs> those guys, I guarantee you, Tony Williams and Elvin Jones first listened to those guys. Sure. And they learned how to play a cymbal beat first, how to play rhythm. Mm-hmm. Then they started adding to it with embellishments. Right. And after you listen to, I can pick records, man, for you for people who listen to drummers, especially like uh, uh, Miles' record, 
uh, Made in California Live with Wayne Shorter, Tony, Ron Carter, and Herbie Hancock, and they're playing, uh, I have the record effect, like Live at the Blackhawk, maybe, I can't remember. But anyway, they play uh, uh, Green Dolphin Street. And I'm listening to Wayne Shorter's solo. It's a really long solo. And I'm listening to Tony Williams playing behind him. Man, all you hear is that cymbal swinging like I don't know what. Yep. It sounds like a giant diesel engine, man. That cymbal be ding, 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 ding. And that's swinging so much I couldn't sit still while I'm listening to the record. (laughs) So much for Tony Williams being busy. Right. (laughs) You know? And Elvin Jones the same way. He used to send me the sub for him, And he sent me on a record date one time. He called me at the last minute. Jimmy, go to Columbia. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, Elvin. I get there, and it's a gigantic orchestra, and they're rehearsing. And the producer meets me at the door. What? Who are you? Where's Elvin? I don't know. I said, well, Elvin sent me. I'm looking in the room, and I, did, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, uh, Norm Grossman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Norm was played. He was hired on the record to play percussion. But since the drummer wasn't there and I was late, he was playing the drum parts in rehearsals. And I'm not, I wasn't, I'm still not a good reader because I don't work on it. But anyway, I see him reading these parts and uh, I just playing the rehearsals and the, the producer said, well, well, where's Elvin? I said, well, Elvin sent me, well, can you do this? I said, gee, I don't think so. <laughs> I turned around <laughs> and went home with my drums. Really? 20 years later, Elvin said to me, I said, well, geez, Elvin, you didn't tell me, man. It was a big orchestra. It was going to be a lot of reading. I wasn't a good reader. He says, see what he says. They don't call me to read. They call me to swing. I said, now you tell me 20 years later. If you told me that then, I would have gone in there. I wouldn't have cared how much I screwed up. I would have just tried to swing my ass off best I could. Right. You know. So you were you close to here is Elvin Jones telling me that. Right. They don't call me to play with a big orchestra to read and blah, blah, blah. They call right. me because I swing. Sure. In other words, man, but all the stuff you hear Elvin playing, as complicated as this stuff is, the main thing on his mind is swinging. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to tell some of these guys I see at Smalls who play all Tony's licks, uh, Elvin licks over and over and over. Their solos sound like that they studied, just came from their house after studying an Elvin record. You know? right. <laughs> so were you close with Elvin? I was pretty close with him, yeah. Really? Uh huh. Well, so what was what was he like? Well, he was great to me. Man, he was uh, uh, like you see him, except he was like a, a, a what's the word to describe? Not a mountain man, but like some kind of force of nature. Like, but also yeah. on the other hand, he was extremely articulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had an incredible vocabulary. Well, that, all those guys did, Dad and, right. and Hank, too. They were really so, distinguished. And Elvin didn't look so distinguished, but he was. Right. And he knew so much. Mm-hmm. I had no idea why he just picked on me. But we used to live on the same street in 59 and uh, had the same landlord, in fact, but different buildings. A whole bunch of guys lived on 6th Street. It's, in fact, it's the jazz musicians who started calling the Lower East Side the East Village. Oh, really? Yeah, and it wasn't until like 10 years later the hippies started calling it the East Village. East Village. But all these guys, <laughs> uh, Lee Morgan, Bobby Timmons, Elvin, Leo Wright, Eddie DeHaas, myself, we couldn't afford to live in the West Village. Right. The West Village was known to all artists. 
what is the first word that comes to mind in people's minds, the average person at the, the Greenwich Village? Artists. Right. Well, we were artists, but we couldn't afford to live over there. Couldn't there, were a lot of, there were a lot of big corporate lawyers who wanted to live around Iris, who bought houses in the village and all that, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe Susan Sarandon and Tim, what's his face, or, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm sure there were some artists, too, rich ones, and probably a lot of art gallery owners. Art, yep. But there weren't any musicians like Elvin Jones or Lee Morgan living over there. You know, there were, because they couldn't afford to. Right, exactly. So those guys, right. I can remember them saying, yeah, we call this the East Village. I said, oh, yeah, well, that does, it sounds silly to me. But next thing I know, in the 60s, all these guys, all these young kids, rich kids with long hair and raggedy clothes, they were living on the Lower East Side. They said, oh, we're just the East Village. I said, wait a minute, we called that the East Village eight years ago. <laughs> you know, but nobody <laughs> seems to hit. know that. Yeah. <laughs> so did you guys hang a lot, you and Elvin? Well, I moved, I moved on, on, on 6th Street January of 1959, and that was the same time I was hired to be the house drummer in the five spot. And Mel Waldron was the leader. It was the house rhythm section. Myself, Peck Morrison, and, uh, and uh, Mel. And there were always two bands at the five spot, but we were the house rhythm section, and one of the bands was with us and a featured uh, soloist every week or sometimes two weeks. And a whole lot of guys, so Coltrane and Booker Little were the solos one weekend, one, two weeks, in fact. Kenny Doran was a solo for a month. Pepper mm-hmm. Adams, Bobby Jaspar, who else? Our Farmer. I can't remember who else. Maybe that's all. And then, and then in the meantime, there were other bands opposite us. The first band when I first started working there was led by Arthur Taylor. And it was, who was in that band? Donald Byrd, Hank Mobley, Tommy Flanagan, and Doug Watkins. And that was the house. That was the other band. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, the, who are those guys are left now? And they were big stars then. Right. right they right. weren't like young guys who just came to New York. They were big. I had their records already when I was a teenager. Donald Byrd right. records, our Farmer records. I remember first hearing Coltrane in '55 or something. Miles. Wow. So you would. I think cause when we were at dinner, you mentioned I, you played with with Coltrane and with uh, Miles, didn't you? Not with Miles, no. Oh, you never played with Miles? No, I knew him fairly well. The first time I met him was uh, at the Newport Festival. I was there with Charlie Ross and Julius Watkins, Quintet Lay Jazz Modes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in the afternoon. They used to have all the big stars. I don't even know if they had Miles that night back then. But they had Dave Brubeck, Louis Armstrong, uh, you know, all the big, Al Fitzgerald and so forth in, at nighttime. In the daytime, they had Lou Donaldson, Miles Davis, uh, uh, Charlie Ross Quintana, all the real inside jazz, but <clears throat> they were big stars only to their colleagues, the fellow musicians. Right. <clears throat> Whereas for the public, Louis Armstrong and so forth, they had them at night as the big feature. So anyway, we're so you ran with that whole crew then? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Well, we were playing in the afternoon. This was when I first got to New York. This had to be the summer of 58. And I was playing with the, with late jazz modes. And when we finished, I got up off the drums. I was about to get down off the stage. And there was a door in the back of the stage. And this guy, Harold Lovett, who was Miles' lawyer and one of his close friends, 
came up up onto the stage. And he said, "Hey man, come with me. Miles wants to meet you." I said, "Really? <laughs> well, okay." So I went out there, and they were standing out. Well, they used to have all these folding chairs in this big field. It was like a, just an open field or a baseball field or something. Right. And then near the front, right in front of the stage, like where the orchestra pit would be, they had this big area fenced off where artists or artists' friends and so forth could go and stand or listen or whatever, mm-hmm. talk. And, and Miles and Jimmy Cobb were standing. Uh, so was, so Harold Lovett took me over to them, and Miles said to me, Hey, man, you pay your ass off. And I was 20 years old. I didn't know. No, thank you, Mr. Day. <laughs> you know, right. I didn't know. I just stood there. I didn't know what to say or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew Miles since then. And my son Nico, and when was it? The 80s, I guess. After Miles started all that fusion stuff, mm-hmm. uh, he had uh, Mino Sinello as his percussionist. And right. Mino Sinello was tight with my daughter Tracy, and he used to have some gigs on his own. And he hired my son Nico to be his drum guy to set up his stuff and all that. So when Nino got the gig of a tour of Japan, I don't know where else, with Miles, he got my son Nico to be his, his drum guy. So then my son Nico became friends with Miles, and Miles made my son Nico be his his young son's babysitter, like or chaperone. Oh, really? Yeah, the kid was fourteen <laughs> or something. Right. And Miles made Nico be. His, <laughs> Nico said uh, he'd stand in the wings while they're getting ready to go out on stage. The band is out there playing, and Miles would be in the wings, and he's getting ready to go out. He said, Dad, every time before Miles steps out on the stage, he hits me in the ass with his trumpet. (laughs) 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 But but Nico was a real street guy, man, and Miles liked that kind of stuff. So he he took Nico. He's like one is, uh, hey, my stepson. <laughs> and that's how I know Miles, you know. I went to a couple of their gigs every now and then. Yeah. But so just to I, listen and hang out. Right, right, right. And those I mean, the uh and I guess he and he and Elvin, I mean they got they got really bad into in the drugs there for a while. Didn't they? Elvin and who? Elvin and Miles. Oh, I don't know. I never heard anything about that. No, I never heard much about Miles and Elvin. I think, man, this friend of mine, a saxophone player, he died uh, a couple of years ago. He told me that somebody brought a tape to his house of Elvin playing with Duke's band, and that Elvin played for a little short time with Duke's band. Mm-hmm. And he said, man, this shit is incredible. He said, but all the old guys in the band, they, they, they made Duke get rid of Elvin. Really? I'd sure like to hear that. I never heard anything more about it. And Elvin's mm-hmm. gone, so I can't try and seek him out and ask him about it. Right. I never knew his old lady, so. Huh. But uh, I'd sure like to find out about that. Yeah. I heard it was, I, I would imagine it would really be something. Well, I'd like, Some to, say, I'd like to say I'm with, with Duke's band, too. You should? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he played it. No frills. He just played right. the music. You know, you yeah. didn't hear him play a whole lot of stuff, but it was so musical and it fit the band so perfectly, it seemed to me. Mm-hmm. I have this 10 CD set. Uh, Duke's family put it out. I think Duke commissioned, you know, Wally Hyder, the engineer from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess for a while he was really popular, right? His studios. There was, 
he was like Rudy Van Gelder up the West Coast or something. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, they commissioned him to come and record all these one-nighters. Uh, and man, that band is unbelievable. That's that's when I really got my nose open to Duke's band. Right. So, yeah. And who was on the band? They have regular bands, the great band, uh, Aaron Bell on bass, uh, Sam on drums, Johnny Hodges, uh, Paul Gonzalez. This was 58, around the same time they made that uh, Newport stuff, maybe a couple okay. of years earlier. They made right, right. Yeah, with that long uh, uh, Paul Gonzalez solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that might have been a year or two before these records were made. And man, this is, well, first of all, they're really good quality, the recording quality. And they're at Air Force bases and other places. You hear the band talking. They're playing some ballad and Duke soloing. And halfway through, it's like the second eight. You hear him say, Rab. I said, Rab. And then he's playing along and he says, Rab. And then they come to the channel, the middle, and all of a sudden you hear Johnny Hodges start soloing. His nickname was Rabbit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you hear Duke keep saying, Rab, Rab, in other words, get ready. <laughs> yeah. And you hear the guys in the band talking to each other while they're playing. Right. Somebody plays some liquor, you hear one guy, oh, whoa. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but Sam was really a killer on this one. What what uh what recordings? I'm looking. I'm gonna look them up right now. Uh, let me see the name of the label. Let me get one out. I can tell you, man. And my favorite uh, volume of the whole ten CD set is volume two. And somebody ripped me off for it. Uh, one of my main boys, no doubt. Where the hell is this? Oh yeah. Okay. I call him Duke Elephant. Count Basement. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see here. This label sounds something like Enjo, but it's not. Oh, it's Saja, S-A-J-A. All right, let me look it up. I'll read what it says on this. Private collection box set. Fine. Yeah, it's a box set. Think 10 CDs. Saja, S-A-J-A. I'll read what it says on here. Um, this is one in a series of 10 albums that, taken together, is a definitive collection of significant compositions written by Duke Ellington and some other songs long association, associated with his body of work. These recordings were personally produced by Duke himself and have remained in his private collection since their completion. Documenting, documenting a large portion of his musical work, some of which had never been commercially released, these private recordings are being made available to to the public by Ellington's family for the first time. Anyway, all right, man. Well, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk today. It was awesome. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. My pleasure. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to see you again in person. We'll, have to, we'll rap some more. Yeah, okay, definitely. Yeah. All right. Yeah, all right, Nick. Well, well you'll be hearing from me in a couple of days or so. Looking forward to it. See you, Jimmy. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it, the great Jimmy Wormworth. Be sure to check him out, facebook.com forward slash Jimmy Wormworth, W-O-R-M-W-O-R-T-H. Visit drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. Or if you want to get at me directly, you can reach me on Twitter at Nick underscore Ruffini, R-U-F as in Frank, F-I-N-I. 
If you want to get the podcast before everybody else, sign up for the VIP list and you'll get a, a uh, email that sends the new podcast to you before it's released to the general public. And until then, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you guys have a safe, healthy, and happy new year. Take care. Peace. Peace.